The Daily Rios for Monday, November 16th, 2015. DC's mini and maxi series of the 1980s, Part 4. And this is the final chapter, I swear. So thank you, Charlton Hero, a listener who runs the Superhero Satellite website at charltonhero.wordpress.com for inspiring this trip down memory lane of DC and Marvel 80s mini, maxi, and limited series. And it is a memory trip. I'm not doing much research. I'm just trying to riff on what I remembered and what I feel when I think of these specific titles. So after one episode of Marvel titles and now the fourth DC episode, I can safely say, yeah, I think I agree with Charlton Hero that DC really did put out the more interesting of the bunch in terms of minis and titles and genres and different differences. Um, I also want to say there's been some really great feedback on the website at thedailyrios.com, and I will take time to respond to comments on these episode threads. So for this episode, we wrap up the 80s by looking at the last two years, 1988 and 1989, and since this falls right into that weird two- or three-year limbo of my comic book collecting, these two or three years where I wasn't collecting a lot of comics, it's safe to say that I haven't read many of these titles. So we start with 1988, uh, the four-issue Cinder and Ash miniseries with artwork by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. They put a trade of this out last year randomly. It is written by Jerry uh, Conway, which makes me think that perhaps they put out this trade as kind of like an olive branch to him when he was discussing the whole situation about creator rights, especially concerning characters showing up on TV series, most notably uh, Arrow and The Flash. You know, Jerry Conway created Felicity Smoke. He created the character, uh, the secret identity of Killer Frost, which is um, uh, the Snow character on Flash. Obviously, he created co-created Firestorm, etc. So I sometimes wonder if maybe this was put out as a way to collect some of his work during the 80s as uh, a way for him to get some, some cash. Um, so four issues. I have the trade. I have a few of the issues. And someday I will read it because I love Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Then we have Martian Manhunter, also four issues, written by Jam DiMatteis, with art by Mark Badger, uh, who was doing American Flag at the time. This is the character's first self-titled comic. So 1988, Martian Manhunter, never read it. Crimson Avenger, four issues, never read this. This is the character's only self-titled comic ever, from what I uh, could find out. And this is written by Roy and Dan Thomas, I assume it has to do with um, a little bit of his the character's post-crisis origins. And I picked up all four of these issues in Bakushu Bins over the past year. Someday I'll read it. I'm, re I'm rereading the JSA series that introduced the new Crimson Avenger at that time. And I'm curious what happened to her. I'm looking forward to finding out. And I, I you know, I, I've always kind of liked the Crimson Avenger as a character, because it's uh, arguably also one of the first mystery men in DC's history, both as a publishing uh, company and in their history, in the actual DC continuity. 
So between, you know, that information and the the uh, the new character that was in JSA, and of course there's speculation that Pandora in the New 52 was almost the new Crimson Avenger as well, maybe by way of Phantom Stranger of sorts, you know. So with all of that, maybe one day I'll read that four-issue miniseries. We have World of Metropolis. First there was World of Krypton, then there was World of Smallville, and now we round out the series, this trilogy of miniseries, explaining the new John Byrne Superman origin and backstory with World of Metropolis. By the way, I totally forgot to mention about World of Smallville that it was revealed that Ma Kent was married before her marriage to Pa Kent. A little bit of uh, trivia there. So World of Metropolis featured Perry White and Lois Lane and Clark Kent and Jimmy Olsen and Lex Luthor. It's with artist Wynn Mortimer, who apparently was a chief cover artist for most of the Superman, Superboy, and Batman titles, including World's Finest, in um, the Golden Age. And apparently he was Jim Schuster's successor on Superman, and they call him the bridge between the Golden Age and the Silver Age. We have Batman the Cult, another prestige comic uh, four-issue miniseries. Never read it. Jim Starlin, Bernie Wrightson. Someday I'll read that. We had Tail Gunner Joe, which was six issues. Know nothing about that. V for Vendetta, 10 issues. The first, let's see, the first six or so are reprints from Alan Moore and David Lloyd's comics from Warrior in the UK. And then issues seven through 10 finished up the story um, either with uh, issues that were previously created and maybe some new stuff as well. Now, I didn't read the miniseries at this time. I read the trade of this when CGS was doing a Book of the Month Club on V for Vendetta. So that's how I know this story. I would love to know what these issues look like, though. Next up, we have Hawk and Dove, five issues, with uh, written by Barbara and Carl Kessel, with art by Rob Liefeld. So it's kind of well known that Liefeld and McFarlane and Larson left Marvel to create Image. But what most people probably don't know is a lot of those artists had their start in independent comics and then at DC. And this miniseries, Hawk and Dove, featured the artwork of Rob Liefeld. It also introduced a new Dove uh, known as Dawn Granger and the villain known as Kestrel. And eventually, Hawk and Dove, because it was popular in the 80s, as we found out in prior episodes, that they would get all wrapped up within the Lords of Order and the Lords of Chaos. So that Hawk was actually an avatar of the Chaos, and Dove was an avatar of Order, and that together they formed Unity or something like that. So um, this five-issue miniseries would eventually spin out into an ongoing series, and um, I've been meaning to collect the ongoing series for a while, so because because of their Titans connection. Then we have Cosmic Odyssey. I definitely read this four issues, another prestige format uh, miniseries. This was a kind of a side event, a side event story for DC. The ad stated, uh, "The anti-life equation is deadlier than they thought." And I remember seeing the ad and thinking. Whoa, it's Darkseid standing with Superman and Batman and Martian Manhunter and Jon Stewart and the New Gods and Starfire and 
Um, you know, especially after Legends, he's working with them. Uh, Jim Starlin, Mike Mignola on the artwork, featuring the new gods, beautiful, beautiful to look at. This is the story where Jon Stewart accidentally blows up a planet or allows a planet to be destroyed. And this would haunt him for many, 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 many years. Um, I dig it. I like it. It's one of Jim Starlin's better DC stories. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, fun to see these characters working with the new gods, especially because, you know, the new gods in, in late 80s, they were still relatively new. And while they weren't necessarily by Jack Kirby anymore, it was kind of fun to see where they were going to fit within the DC universe. All right, then we had the four-issue Deadshot miniseries, which was really dark, by John Ostrander, Kim Yale, with art by Luke McDonald. And, you know, obviously the character was popular from the Suicide Squad series, so to spin him off into his own little miniseries was kind of fun and kind of unique to see. And it it involved his mother and his son, and um, yeah, it's not it's not good. It's not, it's not, it's not chipper and happy. <laughs> uh, you know, the Suicide Squad dealt with a lot of dark issues, even though it was wrapped up within a superhero universe. And this miniseries was definitely part of that. There was the Prisoner four issue miniseries with art by Dean Motter. I imagine this probably would have been a Vertigo series. Plastic Man written by Phil Folio for four issues. Um, the Unknown Soldier had a 12-issue maxi-series written by Christopher Priest when he was going by James Owsley. And then we had Invasion, which was DC's next big event. Three issues, oversized, perfect bound. Um, most likely, as I said before in a previous episode, this was spinning out of certain story points that Tony Isabella was doing for Shadow War of Hawkman. This was written by Keith Giffen, Bill Matlow, Art by Todd McFarland, uh, Todd McFarland, uh, Bart Sears, and Keith Giffen. Uh, all of the aliens of the DC Universe came to Earth and decided to stage an, an invasion because they discovered that Earth had this thing called a metagene. So this is where the whole metagene thing com comes from, where it was used to explain why DC's uh, population why their superheroes got their powers. But then it got a little too crazy because they were even suggesting that maybe characters like Green Arrow and Deathstroke also had the metagene, when really they should have just been normal humans who, you know, had skills or uh, acquired certain um, abilities. But anyway, so the aliens were from the Legion comic, Dominators, the Kuns, Gildishpin and the uh, Durlins, which um, always used to make me think, really, in the 20th century? Um, from Omega Men, you had the Warlords of Akara, you had the Citadelians and the Scions, and then you had the Thanagarians and the Daxamites, who also were from, uh, who were now sort of introduced in the 20th century. Um, out of this series, we, we would get the very popular Legion series. In this event, Snapper Carr was actually a member of the supporting cast, and we would also get the Justice League Europe, uh, the second Justice Justice League title um, of the late 80s. I, li I like the invasion a lot. I really do. Um, it's a little choppy here and there, but, um, you know, uh, it's it's an event that I, I kind of dig. We get Black Orchid, a three another three-issue prestige miniseries by Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. Uh, connecting, 
giving a backstory to Black Orchid and her origin, this mysterious character that showed up in Adventure Comics and Suicide Squad and elsewhere. So Neil Gaiman connected the character to Alec Holland, Swamp Thing, and Jason Woodrow, the Floronic Man, and Poison Ivy, and also to a lot of concepts that Alan Moore was playing with, with the green. Um, Lex Luthor is in this, Batman is in it, Arkham is in it. It was edited by Karen Berger, and it would eventually spin off into a series and a Vertigo series. Now, I think there was... um, Something in this where there was like a, a program of a play at in college. And I want to say that Daniel Cassidy, who became the Blue Devil, his name is in that. And I want to say that even um, uh, Jeanette Clyburn might have even, that name might have been name dropped. Neil Gaiman was, was mining the DC Universe for all these connections, I guess. Uh, we would get Catwoman for four issues, Mindy Newell, I assume, spinning out of the events of Batman Year One. And that brings us to 1989, where we have Jim Starlin's Gilgamesh 2 four-issue miniseries, which I've never read, although I've had in my collection for many, many years. Hero Hotline for six issues. The five-issue Aquaman series by Robert Lauren Fleming and Keith Giffen, who at this point was a golden boy for DC and was writing everything and trying to fix everything. (laughs) I don't know this one. It's obviously spinning out of post-crisis. They're trying to develop Aquaman. I don't know what they added to the mythos. Um, Peter David obviously would add a lot with Atlantis Chronicles in another year or so. Um, But I don't know what this five issues uh, actually added to uh, Aquaman's new origin story. We would have Screamer for six issues written by Peter Milligan. And then we would get Hawkworld, another three-issue prestige format miniseries by Tim Truman, uh, edited by Mike Gold, uh, reestablishing and reinventing the alien Katar Hall as Hawkman and Shayera as Hawkwoman. And this would um, reinvent Thanagar. Um, it would deal with a lot of social commentary. It had a lot to do about class. It really gave Thanagar uh, a unique voice. And I think it also gave Hawkman a new identity. It was really moody. It was gorgeous. It was very smart. The problem with it was it was so popular that they decided to spin it off into a series, a Hawk World series. But the editors, instead of just allowing this three-issue series to be an origin story, they decided to set it in the present DC universe post-crisis. So it's as if the the Hawkman and Hawkwoman character never existed with the Justice League. So they had to find out a reason why. And uh, it became it gave him this convoluted backstory when all they should have done with the ongoing series is just have a little caption that said, 10 years later. In fact, when we did an interview with Tim Truman on CGS, he sort of explained that that was his idea. His idea was just to use this as an origin story. And then if, uh, you know, when it got the ongoing series, just, you know, say that that all happened 10 years ago. I don't know. So it all would have, could have been solved with just one narr- narrative box. Uh, we had Justice Inc. for two issues. We had Green Lantern Emerald Dawn for six issues, which was a, a new origin story for Hal Jordan in this post-crisis DC universe. The first issue was by Christopher Priest, but the remaining issues were by Keith Giffen with Gerard Jones. And I do think that Christopher Priest talks about why he was booted off this series on his own website. 
The art was by uh, M.D. Bright. So this was the post-crisis origin story of Hal Jordan. There was a sequel, another six-issue follow-up, Emerald Dawn 2, uh, in the early 90s. This has been a while since I've read it, so I don't know exactly, I don't remember what the changes were and what they added to the DC mythos, uh, the Green Lantern mythos. This was the era of Green Lantern where Hal Jordan had his gray temples. So it was suggested that he had been a hero for a long time, um, probably right after Superman's um, uh, appearance, first appearance, or maybe even prior to it or something like that. Um, so the idea was that he was supposed to be, you know, older than some of the other newer characters. Uh, Dead Man, Love After Death, two issues by Mike Barron and Kelly Jones. That probably would have been a Vertigo series. Ring of the Nibelung, four-issue miniseries by Roy Thomas and Gil Kane. And then we wrap up 1989, right at the end of 1989, with Time Masters, an eight-issue maxi-series trying to reinvent Rip Hunter within the post-crisis DC universe with art by Art T. Bear. Uh, and it featured Vandal Savage and Viking Prince and Cave Carson, Dr. Fate, Naboo, Orion. Um, the writer was uh, Shiner, um, Lewis Shiner, a sci-fi writer apparently, with Bob Wayne, of all people. Uh, they were the writing writer team and... Uh, it was a way to reestablish Rip Hunter within the post-crisis DC universe, and it's also been a while since I've read it, but there is a trade. I don't know how easy it is to find. So that's it. I told you this one would be short and sweet. Uh, that wraps up 1980s. That wraps up the four-part DC 1980s mini maxi series look that I thought I was going to do in one episode, maybe two, and it wound up being four. It wound up being its own mini series. How about that? So again, thank you for your feedback, your comments on the website, or your tweets. I really do appreciate it. You can send me email at peter at thedailyrios.com, or you can leave a comment on the website, thedailyrios.com. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 331 for Monday, November 16th. Talk to you soon.